So I came in this morning and I told Jesse and Kendrick that this morning I woke up and the Lord laid a different message on my heart than the one I've been preparing. And, uh, and so I was going to come up here and tell you that I was going to do this all from scratch, but that would be reckless. And so I'm going to do what I have been preparing. Um, let's uh, open our Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 12. Your Bibles or Bible apps, your phones, iPads. Beginning in verse 1. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them, speaking about the religious leaders, the Pharisees, in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him. But feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left and went away. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Mark that we've been going through. Um, how we've seen your incredible works. God, and it's caused us to worship you. I pray, um, Lord, as we examine this parable, I pray that you would use me in my weakness uh, to speak pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So snapshots are pictures that are quickly taken. We see them a lot on Instagram and Snapchat and such. and uh, They're quickly taken and they give us a quick view of what's going on in the moment. Uh, but they sometimes fail to give us a full perspective of everything that's happening. In a lot of ways, the book of Mark is a series of snapshots that... Uh, display different aspects of Jesus' life. But Mark's gospel gives us everything we need to know in order to believe and understand the gospel, but Mark is much more focused on the great works of Christ than his words. That's why this parable is so interesting. Mark hasn't recorded a single parable since chapter 4. Now, entering what we often view as the final week of Jesus' life, he slows down a little bit uh, to give us some of these words. While this parable of Jesus can be seen as a quick snapshot interaction between the the religious leaders and and be moved on past, we need to take time to examine what he's actually saying. By slowing down to examine this parable, we'll, we'll be able to recognize in greater detail the sovereignty and the love and the majesty of God. 
So far in the book of Mark, Jesus has traveled throughout Israel teaching and performing miracles. He has made the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In chapter 11, a few weeks ago, we saw how Jesus cleansing the temple demonstrated God's love of the nations and his intolerance of fruitless and hypocritical worship. We've also seen that at the end of Mark, we skipped ahead a few weeks uh, for Easter to to cover uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection. We've seen the end of Mark, and we know that Jesus was aware of what would be taking place leading to the cross. He was adored by the people when he came into Jerusalem. He shared an intimate meal with his disciples and then was betrayed and abandoned by those closest to him. He was tried illegally, slandered and murdered for crimes he didn't commit by, people, by the people he came to save in the most brutal way imaginable. He would be forsaken by God and experience the fullness of God's just wrath towards sin. And leading up to this interaction with the Pharisees, we see the groundwork being laid to discredit Jesus and challenge his authority. The leaders were angry that Jesus had emptied the the court of the Gentiles of a profitable money exchange and gouging of people who were there to truly worship God. They demanded that Jesus give an answer for why he had done the things that he had done, but uh, their response to him shows their heart. It shows that their heart desired to kill him, which we know from Mark chapter 3 had been there the whole time. They were seeking all the way back in chapter 3 to kill Jesus. So moving into chapter 12, Jesus tells this parable. And while it could be easy to dismiss this as a rebuke of the religious leaders, we have to see ourselves rightly in the mirror of Scripture. Just as these tenants rebelled and desired their own kingdom, you and I have rebelled and seek our own kingdom. But in our rebellion, I want us to see the incredible love of God displayed for us through Jesus. How do we see this love? We see it through his pursuit of of us, his patience towards us, and his provision for us. We experience God's love through his patience. We look at, starting in verse 1, Jesus, speaking to the, to the Pharisees, says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for a wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to the tenants, and went into another country. Now, Jesus is drawing here from a very well-known passage in Isaiah chapter 5, says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. In this passage, it's clear that the vineyard, uh, the owner of the vineyard is God, and the vineyard represents Israel. Uh, However, in Isaiah, the issue is dealing with unfruitfulness and and a failure to be righteous. Uh, In Jesus' parable, the issue is the wicked tenants and the rejection of the son. In Isaiah, the wild grapes represent the people. Um, In in Jesus' parable, these tenants represent the religious leaders. In Isaiah and in in Mark, we see that the owner of the vineyard has spared no expense in creation of this vineyard. He planted the vineyard. He put a fence up to keep out intruders and animals. He dug a pit for the wine press 
He built a tower to have an elevated observation point. All of these things show that, that the owner is invested into this. But it's important that when, that when we look at parables in Scripture, we don't try to read uh, things into every detail. You know, the, people want to try to say that the, the tower means this and the, the wall means this. And all, but the Jesus is just a really good storyteller. So these are elements of a good story. And there's, there's a deeper truth in the parable. We read in verse 2 that when the tenants, uh, excuse me, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now, servants here represent the prophets. Throughout the Old Testament, we see prophets as the mouthpiece of God. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 says that uh, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. They often declared the sins of the people and called them to repent. But Hebrews 11 also tells us that many of these prophets were killed for the very message that they uh, proclaimed. The owner of the vineyard, vineyard continues to send his servants to collect what is his, He's the owner. He, he, is, he is owed a, a portion of the profits of this land. He spared nothing to give these tenants what they need to work and cultivate the land. These tenants are an open rebellion to the owner. They refuse to give him what is his, and they mistreat those that the owner sends uh, in, his, in his place. We have to stop here and look more closely at what's going on in these first five verses. God, if, he's, if God is the owner of this vineyard in this parable. He, he's the creator of everything. He spared no expense in his creation of the world because he owns everything, including you and me. The continual sending of servants shows his unbelievable patience towards us. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Most of us if, if, if we were in this place, would demand justice after the first uh, servant was, was returned with, without his profit. Yet we read that many servants were sent, all of them treated poorly. In the same way, God showed unbelievable patience towards Israel, sending prophet after prophet, calling them to repent and not desiring to destroy them. And he continues to do the same for you and me. He's endured your sin. He is... He's been patient with you. The doctrine of sin is foundational in understanding our salvation rightly. Romans 3 tells us that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not one. Now, face value, this is really, really difficult to believe. I mean, nobody understands. Nobody seeks for God. We're worthless. People have the ability to understand, and people have been seeking for God since the creation of the world. So how can this be true? This passage, it, this passage isn't saying that people don't have the mental capacity to understand anything, or to be right, or to seek God. That's not what Paul's saying here. What he's saying is that because sin is so invasive in our lives, because it's so deeply rooted in our hearts, that we can't rightly do any of these things. That's why in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 23, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. 
Apart from Christ, we can't understand the crucifixion. It doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't doesn't affect our hearts. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block because it it was not dependent on following the law, but on faith alone. The Gentiles thought it was foolish because how can one man... Forget, one man brings salvation to sinners through his death. That seemed like weakness. Sin affects our ability to understand. It affects our ability to seek God. It affects our ability to be righteous before God. We want to bend God into our own image because if we do that, it makes us feel less sinful. He's more palatable. He's not a, a wrathful God. He's this loving fairy Jesus that we can, we can deal with, and it makes us feel better. God is wrathful and just, but he is loving. There's balance there. He, he is, he's perfect in, in all his attributes. We try to do good things, but Isaiah tells us that even our righteous deeds are blood-soaked rags because of sin. Even our seemingly good deeds are filled with self-righteousness. We're not worthless because we have no value. God created us in his image. We're worthless because we, we can't do the thing that God created us to do, and that's bring him glory. One preacher said that if sin were the color blue, we would all be totally blue. Maybe some different shades and different parts, but all of us still completely blue. Many of us can behavior modify our actions, our sinful things that everyone sees. We can, we can change our th- things about us so that looking on, we don't appear that bad. But sin is not just our, our, our actions, it's our thoughts, it's our speech, our intentions, our motivations for things. David writes in the Psalm that in sin, my mother conceived me, not because his mother was sleeping around and, and, and you know, he was conceived that way, but because we're, we are sinful completely from birth to death. That, that, that marks our life. Going back to creation, God having created rights over everything. He's made everything for his glory. I enjoy working with wood. I wouldn't call myself a craftsman by any means, but I, I like working with wood and trying to make furniture out of it. But never once has the wood ever looked at me and said, I don't want to be that. I'd rather be this. Because I'm crafting the wood, I control it. I determine what it's going to be. And if it's good, I get glory for it because I made it. God created everything. He creates the stars to radiate his glory, Psalm 19 tells us. He creates the sea and says, you can only go this far. He makes the land and tells the mountains where to form and the plains where to rest. He commands the animals and the birds and the fish, and they all do exactly what they're supposed to do because he's told them what to do. And then he creates man in his own image to rule and cultivate the land, to be his ambassadors on this earth, his vice regents. And he gives them a command to not eat of this fruit in the garden, and Adam disobeys. He eats this fruit. And from that moment on, every man, woman, child has raised their fist in rebellion to God and said, no, I won't do that. I won't do what you've created me to do. Danny Aiken, the the president of Southeastern Seminary, says that what's happened here is that we took what was God's, what was his, and said it's ours. You see the ridiculousness of our crime against God. He created us for a purpose, for uh, glorifying him, and we said, no, I'd rather not do that. Audrey saying no to me 
when I tell her not to do something is, is disobedient. But sometimes I can't help but laugh at her because what could she really do? She's two. In her two-year-old rebellion, she shakes her fist at me and says, I know better than you. And, and the reality of the situation is I could easily destroy Audrey. I'm not saying that I want to do that. I love her more than most of you, I'm sorry. But, it, it's the, uh, um, but I'm so much stronger than her. And I know so much more about this world than she does. You and I are toddlers shaking our fist at God, saying that we know better than him. But he doesn't destroy us. He's patient towards us. He's kind. He doesn't annihilate us, but he, he shows us grace. The grace that he shows us, we all experience. We all experience what's called common grace. That's a theological term that is exactly that. It's a common grace that we all experience from God, every one of us. Matthew 5 says that he makes his sunshine, his sunrise on evil and, and on the good. He sends his rain on the just and the unjust. John 1, 9 says Jesus is the true light that enlightens every man because he sustains everything and he gives us the ability to understand the world that we live in. He enlightens us. Romans 2 tells us that God's law is written on our heart. So we all have the ability to understand morality. God's law is on our heart. We know that racism is wrong. We know that murder is wrong because God has written it on our hearts. To each of us, he has poured out his grace, whether we're saved or not. Each of us experiences the common grace of God. We enjoy the sunshine. He sends the rain to water the food that we eat. The very breath that we breathe is sustained by God. And we all enjoy that. But not only that, not only does he give us common grace, but he's graciously provided salvation. We experience common grace, but if this is all the grace that we have, it's not enough to save us from our sin. Now we've looked ahead to the end of Mark. We've, we've seen the crucifixion and the resurrection, and we know that there was a way provided for us, that if we believe that Jesus Christ came and died, a death that he didn't deserve, for our sins, we believe that and that he was resurrected, we are saved. We have forgiveness of sins. We're not left to the destruction of our flesh in hell. And if you believe the gospel, if you believe that Jesus Christ came, lived the life that you don't, des- lived a perfect life and died the death that you deserve to die and was raised again three days later, if you believe that, then you're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This means that your life is entirely different. Your world, everything is different. The lens that you see life is different. For so many people, almost everyone that I've ever talked to that has just been saved, when you ask them what's different, they, they, they tell you that they see things differently. Colors are brighter. All the, I mean, it's not, not that I think anything magical, mystical happens, but what happens in salvation is incredible. You were dead, and now you're alive. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in the trespasses of your sin in which, in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Moving ahead, it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This doesn't mean that we no longer struggle with sin as, as believers, but, but the struggle that's there is the leftovers of that man in Romans 3 that doesn't seek God. 
We, we, we wrestle with that, but we're not enslaved to it. Sin doesn't dominate our life. It's not what defines us anymore. We have the ability to be righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus. You have to make sure, though, that you don't presume upon the grace of God. He's shown you so much grace. We can't assume that because we have been shown this grace that we can continue to sin. Romans, th- Romans 6 says, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. Paul is addressing these people and they're saying, If we've been shown all this grace, then why don't we just keep on sinning so that God can show us even more grace? Isn't that, doesn't that bring him more glory? No. If, you've been, if you have been saved, you've been changed. Shall you go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. If you assume that the grace of God is there as a provision for you to sin, that might be evidence that you're not saved at all. That you don't really belong to him. That he hasn't adopted you as a child. This grace, and and Jared mentioned it when we went through chapter 11, this grace will run out. There's coming a day when his grace will end. He will return and, and... there will be judgment. And so today is the day of your salvation. If you don't believe, believe, repent and believe. We experience God's love through his patience towards our sin. He's shown us grace after grace after grace. Just like he sent prophet after prophet, servant after servant. And we experience his grace, we experience his love through his pursuit of sinners. If you look at, uh, excuse me, verse six, starting in verse six, it said he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The beloved son here is obviously Jesus. But looking at this twist in the story, we don't see uh, why killing the son will result in these people receiving the inheritance. Um, Jewish law passed on the land as an inheritance. It stayed in the family. Uh, But if no heir could be found to claim the land, it would be be sold. It would be given uh, either to the tenants leasing the land or sold uh, to people willing to buy it. So, the Jewish leaders here, these, these tenants, are, are seeking to gain this land for themselves. They, they want control. They want their own kingdom. They don't want to follow these rules that this tenant has set and said, you know, here's your vineyard. I, I get this portion of the profit. Um, they said, no, we, we do the work and we want to kill the son so we can have the land. This will be our kingdom. They think that the owner is likely dead or very sick because he hasn't come to claim the profit himself. He sent, he sent his son. So think that the son is, he's inherited the land and it's his. So if they kill him, then they can take it. They're seeking to establish themselves. They want to rule the way they want. The religious leaders were seeking their own kingdom by exploiting the people. They were trying to raise, or I guess financially establish themselves through gouging the people in the temple for sacrifices and things. Uh, they were trying to make themselves an extra biblical source of holiness. And what I mean by that is that they, they were looking at the law of God and saying, this is, what the, this is what the law says is required for holiness. 
Now, here are all these rules to keep you as far away from breaking it. And if you break even one of these rules that we made up, you are in sin. So, that, so they, they created these rules. And by striving themselves to take down the Lord, by, by in, in their hearts trying to murder him, figuring out a way to kill him, they were trying to establish their own kingdom. We have to ask ourselves this question. As Christians, do we try to place an extra biblical expectation on people? Do we try to look at others and say, you're not quite measuring up to what I think a Christian should be, and so you're obviously not a Christian? Do we not have a tendency to judge others or look down on people because they're doing things that we question or don't think necessarily is right? Now, let me be clear. There, there, scripture is very clear. There, there are commands in the Bible. It's not this flippant, postmodern, truth is relative, I can read into this what I want. There, there is absolutes in Scripture, and we must follow those things. But to, put, to place anything extra on somebody, an extra burden beyond what Scripture has, has told us is wrong. But, we, but we, we are so tempted to do that ourselves. We try to establish our own, our own kingdom by comparing ourselves to other, by con- others, by constantly seeking attention and feeling that we deserve better than we have. In this past year, I've seen this so clearly in myself. I've been unemployed since August when we moved here. Um, this has been so crushing to my pride. And I often find myself in prayer asking God, why me? Don't I deserve a uh, fulfilling job with great benefits and reasonable hours? I want to establish myself as a hard, work, a hard worker, a funny guy, smart guy, uh, a guy who loves his family better than anyone, anyone else has ever loved their family and provides for them. And these things aren't bad things. But what I often find if I look in my heart is that I want these things more than I want Jesus. So much more than I want Jesus. And it crushes me. And I'm not the only one that does that. Each of us does that in our, in, in our own ways. We, we want so much more for ourselves. And we say, I want this more than Jesus. He's not enough. And the reality is, Jesus came to set us free from the law. And we struggle with that. We like the law. The law gives us a standard that we can measure ourselves by. We can look at others and say, I'm, I'm doing better than them, or I'm, lo- I, I'm doing these things, so I'm obviously doing all right. But the truth is, the law condemns us. We can't even measure up to our own standards of morality. We gossip like crazy. We're, we're people that gossip, America is. And that, if, that, if that alone is, is a thing that we know is wrong and we still do it, do, do we not fail to meet our own moral standards? We've been condemned by the law. But if you've been saved, you've been set free of that. Not so that you can go on sinning, but so that you can stop. We're so quick to forget that grace. So how are you at dying to your sin daily? How are you at laying your life down at the foot of the cross and saying, Jesus is better? How are you at, at killing your sin? How are you at loving the lost and hurting in our city? Or are we so self-absorbed that this becomes an afterthought? The thing that we do when all of our other needs have been met. God continues to pursue sinners. These tenants deserve to be destroyed the very first time that they rejected the servant. 
Israel deserved to be destroyed the very, first, the very first time they decided to worship a false god. And they turned away from God. But God continued to pursue them. He gave them his word. We have the, the, the Old Testament is the word of God that he gave these, his people so that they could know him and worship him. He sent them prophet after prophet, desiring that they would repent. And ultimately, he sent them Jesus as a, as a sacrifice for their sin, that if they would just believe in him, look on him and, and repent of their sin, that they would be saved. And we deserve to be destroyed because of our sin, because we've rebelled against God, because we've looked at him and said, I don't want that. I want to do my own thing. We deserve to die just for that. But he sent Jesus. God continues to send his servants. He promised in Genesis 3 that he would send someone to crush the head of the serpent and ultimately redeem his people. He revealed himself, he reveals himself to us and offers forgiveness for sins through Jesus. So how must we respond to his pursuit? If you, if you have not believed, you respond by repenting and turning to Christ. But if you're a Christian, you respond in a very similar way. You, you pursue the lost. You pursue those in our church body who are in sin, calling them to repentance. You, you pursue those who are different than yourself, outside of your sphere of influence or comfort zone. The church should be diverse in, in race and backgrounds and economic position, not because we want to say, look how, look how good we are, but because that's what heaven is going to be like. God has pursued the world. He's pursued all people. The promise of the, the, the seed of Eve in Genesis 3 that would crush the head of the serpent is for all people, not just Israel. We experience God's love through his patience. We experience it through his pursuit of sinners. But we also experience God's love through his church. Let's look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy these tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The statement Jesus is making is prophetic of not, not only the destruction of the temple uh, that would come, uh, but of this, the establishment of the church. The Jews understood this passage in Psalm 118 uh, to mean that the stone the builders rejected was Israel. The world had rejected Israel, and God was going to restore Israel. But Jesus shows us that, 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 that that's not the case. He, he is the stone that was rejected. And in case, in case we start thinking that this was just an unfortunate turn of events that Jesus kind of stumbled into, he was just being, he was preaching and, and all these people just got real angry. Um, verse 11 says that this was the Lord's doing and, it's marvelous in our, and, and it is marvelous in our eyes. There's a mystery between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God predestined all of these things to happen, not as an afterthought, but as the main event. This was plan A. This is what he wanted. He wasn't reacting to the sinfulness of Adam. Yet man is completely responsible for the death of Christ. Acts chapter 4, Peter, is, Peter has just healed a man 
and, and they're proclaiming Christ, and he's on trial before the, the Jewish leaders, and this is his response. He says, let it be known to you, uh, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which you must be saved. God is totally sovereign over all things. And he is sovereign enough to use the actions, the sinful actions of man for his greater purpose. The church was always his greater purpose. The promised seed of Eve, like I said, was for the nations. But we struggle to believe this. How can this be the greater purpose? Because this church is so dysfunctional. So many of us have been hurt by the church. So many of us have experienced what it's like to have overbearing uh, leaders in the church place these unrealistic expectations on us that weigh us down in our salvation. We've experienced what it's like to be hurt by those in the church, betrayed by those in the church. That's so real for so many of us. So many of us struggle to see the church as, as what it is, as, as God's plan for us, that this is good. It is good that sinful people can be brought together and be made whole, be restored. That, that I can have relationships with people who are, who are just as sinful as myself, not because we, we've learned to get along, but because we have something in common, and that's Christ. He's forgiven us our sins so we can forgive others. We've been shown grace. Some of us have been so hurt by family that we can't even see the church as the family of God. We've been hurt by those close to us. We've been hurt by those in our immediate family, our extended families. So that the idea of seeing God as a loving father is difficult enough, but, but the idea to see the church body as, as a loving family is ridiculous. If you only knew how much I've been hurt by my family, you wouldn't be saying this. But the, but the truth is that the family unit was created and designed by God. He created it so that we could be in community with each other and point each other towards Christ. And that's what we experience in the church. Some of us struggle with submitting to a church. Some of us, for us, submitting to the crossing church, joining a church, allowing yourself to be put under the leadership of our elders and of the body of Christ. We struggle with this. Because it feels oppressive. It feels, feels like I'm committing too much. Like, if, what if I mess up and they throw me out? What if they don't like me? But again, that's not what the church is about. The church is not about creating a social club where we can all get together with people that are just like us and say, look how good we are. It's about bringing people of different backgrounds and races and everything so that when the, when the world looks at the church, the world sees heaven. They see a little outpost of heaven. Revelation 19, 6 through 8 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord 
our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made, himself, made herself ready. The church is so often described as the bride of Christ. And Doug Wilson has said that if you do not love the church, you do not love Christ, because you cannot love the husband and hate the bride. You can't say to me that, Joseph, I love you. You are awesome, but hate Emily. That's offensive to me. That hurts me. You don't love me because you don't love my wife. We're one flesh. We are, we are a family unit. In the same way, you can't say, I love Jesus and I love his teachings, but I really hate the church. I really hate his bride. The church is a reflection of the kingdom to come, and that is good news. The good, it's good news because this world is not as good as it gets. That would be awful. Think about it. Our own earthly kingdom fails so much. Around the world, there's poverty and war and disease. In America, in the land of the free, there is still oppression. Taking it a step further, in our own little kingdom, our lives aren't perfect. They're not that great sometimes. You've never finished in a day everything that you needed to do. And if you did, it was because you gave yourself a really short list because you knew that life was going to get crazy. We get sick. We have loved ones get sick. We have no control over what happens to us. But in the church, we see a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. Church is an outpost of God. There's a church membership book that I don't think we have to read it anymore to do membership stuff, but, but he describes the church as this, this uh, ambassador, um, like this embassy, overseas embassy, where you can go into this embassy. If you're in the United States over, overseas, you can go into an embassy and say, I'm a citizen. This is my citizenship belongs to the United States. You can find refuge in an embassy overseas, and you're safe because you're a citizen. The church functions as an embassy on earth. We come here and we identify ourselves with Christ because this is, his, this is his embassy. You can look at the church and say, those people belong to the Lord. That is how the, the church functions. The church is where we begin to experience, his, experience the blessings of God's rule. Eventually, the church will pass away when, when Christ returns and there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. This, the suffering that we experience right now in this world is temporary. So don't grow weary in loving the church well. Don't grow weary in pursuing the lost. Don't grow weary in dying to yourself and repenting of sin. Revelation 21, so encouraging, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from, from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, Anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and the faithless and the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. While there's a great warning in this passage that for those who don't repent and believe, this is what you will experience. There's great hope. There's great hope. There will be no more pain, no more suffering. We will be in the presence of God. He will be our people. There will be no more struggle with sin. As we read in Mark 12, verse 12, the last verse there, it says that they were seeking to arrest him and feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The religious leaders were seeking to arrest Jesus. They hated him. They wanted him dead. For what? When Jesus wasn't preaching or teaching about repentance in the kingdom of God, he was healing the sick. He was feeding the hungry, comforting the afflicted, and and raising the dead. The kind of man Jesus was and is is the kind of man that this world hates. The world will hate you if you were like Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus because they didn't love God. They loved themselves and they loved their sin. They wanted wanted control and wanted to be worshipped rather than worship the one that deserves all of our worship. They loved their sin. And unless we think we're any different than these religious leaders, we have to remember that not even a week later, the entire people of Israel were crying out, crucify him. These people that adored him and, and, and wanted him to rule said, crucify him. We want him dead. We're no different. Jesus knew this, and he testified to this over and over again. And still he demonstrates his great love. The hymnist writes, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. He goes on and says, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. This is amazing love. Beloved, drink deeply, From this well of God's love. Rejoice and praise because He has loved you so much. See how He's provided for you through the church. See how He's pursued you in your sin and how He's been so patient with you as we fail and given us a way to have a relationship with Him. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our sight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your grace. Lord, I thank you, God, that you haven't left us to try to figure this out on our own. But you've made yourself known to us, God. We can know you. We can have a close relationship with you. Lord, I pray as we respond through singing of 
songs, God, that our hearts would be affected, or that you would stir our affections for you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.